Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Vivek Sudera, who's a founder of Superhuman. Superhuman is the fastest email client in the world and was built. Uh, rebuild the inbox from the ground up to make you brilliant at what you do. Uh, prior to Superhuman, Vivek was a founder of LiveAmp, which went public in 2018. Vivek has done his bachelor's from University of Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Vivek. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So, you know, uh, how did you get your, your start in, in startups and, you know, what got you really interested to be in this world of uh, entrepreneurship? Yeah. So, I in college, I was a double major in chemical and nuclear engineering at UC Berkeley. A friend of mine accidentally emailed me. He meant to email another friend and uh, he emailed this entrepreneurship uh, speaker series. And so I'd asked him, I was like, what is this? And uh, I attended the class because I was very intrigued and that I caught the bug at that point. Um, I realized, you know what, what am I doing? It's my senior year of college. Uh, I'm going down the path of, of being a nuclear engineer, doing a PhD. But this is this is really interesting. This this uh, lecture series uh, where I caught this bug, and so I delayed graduating by a year, and I took every single entrepreneurship class at UC Berkeley. I audited the Haas Business School classes as well, and when I came out of college, uh, I was looking for an opportunity to be at an early stage startup, and so I got connected to this guy Orrin Hoffman, who was starting a company, and. Uh, you know, I really didn't care too much about what the company did. Um, you know, the company was called Rapleaf, uh, which was building a reputation platform. For me, it was really wanting to learn as much as I could from the feet of a master about all things startups, all things entrepreneurship. Uh, and so I was very fortunate to join as one of the founders of that company. That company has gone through ups and downs and went through various pivots. Uh, and its final form became LiveRamp. Which uh, became a uh, which was an ad tech company that went public, and yeah, it's I'm very lucky to be part of that journey. So that's that's how I got my start in the uh, in the startup world. Very interesting because you know you've been a solid serial entrepreneur. You've also uh, before Superhuman, you've also been part of ASEED. Uh, what what were some of your learnings with with ASEED, and uh, you know how 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 do you believe with uh, you know, startups where you're trying to, you know, get get to the right product market fit. Yeah. So with my first, so I've done three companies now, Superhuman's my third company, LiveRamp was my first. With LiveRamp, we, we didn't focus on getting a product market fit. Um, we were focused on getting customers and we ended up building a product and had type of data that resonated with our customer base. And so we just started to invest in growth and started to invest in growing the business. With my second company, Airseed, I assumed we would get to product market fit. Now, this is a company that was a developer platform. Uh, and I was at the helm as CEO of this company. So I assumed we would get to product market fit. I just, based on my experience, it would happen. And that, I, that was uh, a false assumption because uh, I learned the hard way that I need to laser focus on product market fit. But by that point, it was too late. Um, I was pretty burned out. 
I had, uh, it was about two and a half, almost three years into the company, had raised a small amount of venture capital, about 1.2 million, and was pretty much exhausting all of that. And so that, that learning, it was incredibly painful, um, but it definitely influenced our approach and superhuman definitely influenced my push for us to get to product market fit at superhuman. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the air seed journey was one that was, you know, experienced failure in that respect, but as they say, failure is a rite of passage for entrepreneurship. And so I learned an immense about my immense amount about myself, uh, through that experience looking at yourself in the mirror and realizing, you know what, you're not actually meant to be a CEO. Like that was one of the things that I learned about myself. Um, it was an exercise of self-awareness. Um, and, uh, you know, through tears, just, you know, realizing these things about what am I good at? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Um, and, you know, when we started Superhuman, my co-founder Rahul was like, you know, I'm going to be the CEO of this company. And I was like, you, you should be the CEO. I never want to be CEO ever again. Um, and he was like, you know, I'm, I'm curious why. And I was like, you know, I found that the best CEOs, especially for, for technology companies are ones who have a technical background. I didn't have a technical background. I wish I did. Uh, this was, uh, uh, one of the things I would have done differently if I could go back in time. Um, and they are very opinionated about product. And they like to exert control, especially around the product experience. And for me, I didn't value control as much. I valued influence. Uh, and so that was definitely a learning and, and definitely something that, that was an incredible failure uh, in that experience was such an incredible teacher for me. You know, um, I think this resonated so well uh, with me because, you know, I, I tried to build a, build a software company and a T2C brand, but I, I did not have a a product background or a technical background. And this is something which I could also, if I could go back and I would change for myself. But, uh, but you know, 2020 was a difficult year for a lot of, a lot of companies, a lot, a lot, lot of founders. And what, uh, what message would you give to, to founders who uh, would want to, you know, sustain Poral in such hard times? Uh, what, what time period? Uh, uh, you know, uh, during the COVID period, there are a lot of companies which folded down. So any, any tips for founders who would want to get through such hard times? Yeah, I think the, the thing that I, I very much recommend is identify any win, no matter how small it is, um, that will help boost the morale internally within yourself and within your company is if you identify this win and that win um, and get into the habit of doing that. We implemented a practice at Superhuman years before the pandemic. Um, we call this Friday wins and every Friday we celebrate our wins for the week. And so as a small team, everyone would go up and we would, um, you know, when we were in an office together, we would make cocktails, we would socialize uh, for about five, 10 minutes, and then folks would present their win for the week. And if you were on the engineering side, it might be, I shipped this feature, I fixed these bugs. If you're on the growth side, it might be, uh, I onboarded these 30, 40 customers, here's the feedback that we got. If you're on customer support, it might be, here's the screenshots of, of all the love that we got from customers this week. Um, and so, during hard times, whether it's uh, during a pandemic or just 
independent of a pandemic, your company is just going through a hard time. I think identifying wins and highlighting that uh, and making that part of the culture will help boost the morale, help keep things going for, for the organization and for the individuals within the company. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, 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 I think that's, that's the right uh, way to go about it. And, you know, I want to go back to, uh, to superhuman, uh, you, you created a king, uh, engine to define product market fit. Uh, do you, do you think, uh, metrics like NPAs are, are, are the right way to, to define product market fit, but uh, before that, you know, what, what was the engine that you developed to, uh, to define the product market fit? Yeah. So it was about a year and a half, almost two years in we were starting to get the product in front of some early customers. And I distinctly remember conversations with my co-founder Rahul and uh, my other co-founder uh, Conrad, who's our CTO. And it was like, how are we, how are we, how do we know that we're a product market fit? And I, I had this chip on my shoulder. I had this scar tissue from not getting a product market fit with my prior company Airseed. And that, like I said, that definitely influenced my, you know, I guess neuroticism about like, oh, we have to get to product market fit. And so uh, this is this is the genius of Rahul, my, my co-founder and CEO. He was thinking about reverse engineering a framework and all the content that was out there was, was content that was like essentially lagging indicators. Like, you know, when you got to product market fit, when um, investors are beating down your door and uh, journalists want to write a story from you or customers are pulling the product out of your hands faster than you can actually deliver it to them. But that was too late. It's like, how do we, how do we even get there? How do, we, how do we get to that point? We needed some leading indicators. And so Rahul, he came back one day and he was, he was like, you know, I, I stumbled upon this unique insight from this gentleman by the name of Sean Ellis. And Sean was an early growth marketer. I think he may even coin the term growth marketer. He was early at Dropbox, Eventbrite. Um, he had consulted with hundreds of startups. And so in his professional experience, he started measuring uh, that point where these companies get to product market fit. And in particular, he came up with a line of questioning that was orthogonal to MPS. And the line of questioning was, how disappointed would you feel if this product went away? And the responses, the options are either very disappointed, someone disappointed or not disappointed. And he found by asking the, this particular question, measuring the results that across all of these companies, he saw there was a particular inflection point, this pattern around 40% of your users give you the response very disappointed to that question. And so Rahul came back and uh, I remember we were in our office uh, in, in the conference room. And prior to that point, we were, we were banging our heads against the wall, trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we make this work? How, like, how do we know that we've gotten product market fit? We were surveying our early users and customers, the folks that we had just given this product to. So we introduced this line of questioning and in addition to that, we introduced other lines of questioning. Um, you know, what's missing from the product today? Uh, what do they love about the product? How would they describe uh, superhuman to uh, someone that, how, how would they describe someone who would love the product? 
And so we were measuring these responses and it just started to come together. And it was a lot of iteration and a lot of tweaking. Um, but from there, we developed this product market fit framework that um, you know allowed us to segment these early customers, uh, to identify the power users, the high expectation customers. We, um, we analyzed their feedback. We built this roadmap that was 50% of what folks love about the product and 50% of what was missing. And then we just kept asking those questions every time we onboarded a new customer. It was rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And when we started out, I remember our very disappointed number, our very disappointed score was very far away from that 40%. It was around 22% or so. And then we did some segmentation of our customer base uh, of the early power users, identify the high expectation customers, and that 22% jumped to 32%. And so we listened to the folks who were fitting this particular persona that had given the uh, response somewhat disappointed. So they weren't very disappointed. They were somewhat disappointed. And we looked at those folks and worked on features and um, aspect and experiences that were missing today with the product or missing at that point of the product. Uh, for example, the overwhelming response for these early users was having an iOS app. We didn't have an iOS app. Our expectation was we were going to build our iOS app in series instead of in parallel with our desktop web experience. And so we made that a priority. And it was that feedback that led us to double down on uh, not just the speed experience, which is what folks, which is what resonated with the early customers, these high expectation customers, but also what was missing for them. And so that 22%, which became 32%, passed the 40%, and then became 50%. And so interestingly, we did see a lot of magic happen at the 40% threshold. And we saw a flurry of people sign up. We saw a lot of inbound come in from investors, from, from journalists, et cetera. So that's when we, we really knew there was something here. And from there, we synthesized the content um, and we open sourced it through first round review. And to this day, we, we still get a lot of love from the community, from other founders, from product managers, from investors. I would say eight out of 10 product managers have read the Superhuman Guide to Product Market Fit. Pretty much every single investor, every single founder we've come across have have come have mentioned that as well. So you know, this is something that we were fortunate enough to unlock this, demystify this process, and getting to product market fit. Um, especially speaking for someone who didn't get there with my prior company, ends up being the death knell for ninety plus percent of startups. So if we can demystify this framework and give folks a playbook, a recipe. Uh, I think that's just a, a significant net positive to the world uh, where you have all these entrepreneurs who are that much closer to adding value to the world, adding value to society. And we're just fortunate enough that we are, uh, that we were able to open source that content for folks. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. 
so you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, yeah, the way this was a, like a short masterclass on you know how, how to do a product market fit, and I really love how you reverse engineer the whole thing. Um, but you know, you also had a very different launch strategy, uh, and uh, you know what was what was so different, and how did you come up with this launch strategy uh, to get new users? Yeah, so technically we still haven't launched. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, when we started the company, we expected to build a self-serve premium email experience. And when we got this in the hands of the early customers, with the first 50 or 100 or so, we looked at our metrics and we saw that retention rates were not as high as we expected. Churn was much higher than we expected. We measured NPS. Our NPS score at the time, I think, was like in the 30s or low 40s. We aspired to be at Apple levels, Apple having an NPS score in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, we were scratching our heads and we're like, what's going on here? Um, why, why aren't people really retained on the product? Um, why is our NPS score this low compared to our standards? And so we talked to a lot of our customers. We captured a lot of data, qualitative and quantitative data through surveying, through conversations. We looked at the metrics and we stumbled upon two fundamental truths about our business. The first was that we really had to rewire how people did email. Um, folks had developed, people had developed years, if not decades of bad habits with email. You never really learn how to do email. You don't take a course. And so it's like someone who's never learned how to properly work out or have proper nutrition and they've just had unhealthy an unhealthy lifestyle uh, all their life. It's in their best interest to go work with a personal trainer to help them develop good habits um, at least the first uh, first few times around. Uh, and then the second was that uh, we had built all these bells and whistles under the hood and we were building the anti-Gmail where Gmail is cluttered. Um, has buttons, uh, disjointed experience all over the place, which contributes to people's anxiety and, and people just um, just frustrated when they look at their inbox. Um, and it, it also contributes to the, the performance of the Gmail experience. It's just very clunky. It's very slow. And in contrast, we built something that was um, minimal, powerful, under the hood. We built a command line interface. Um, leveraging keyboard shortcuts. And so a lot of the early customers were missing out on a lot of the bells and whistles that we had built. Um, it's, it's another analogy I have. It's like someone who has their driver's license and they see a Tesla down the street and they're like, I know how to drive. I know how to drive that car. I have a driver's license. They get in for the first time. And, and I know for me, when I first drove a Tesla, I had no idea how to do basic things on a Tesla. It wasn't intuitive. It wasn't obvious. I had to watch a YouTube video for 30 minutes while sitting in the driver's seat of a Tesla and figure out how do I do this? Okay, here, here's how to do the turn signal. Here's how to do that. And so um, in order to be successful in using a product like Tesla, you need someone to actually show you how to do these things. And so it was those two fundamental truths about rewiring people's brains and how they did email combined with showing folks these bells and whistles that led to this conclusion that we actually need to hold their hand, um, at least for the early set of customers. And we'll figure it out later on what we're going to do and how to scale this. But we, um, we onboarded uh, 
the, myself and Rahul, we paired on this. We onboarded the first 40, 50 customers in person. And we would go to their offices or they'd come to ours and we'd spend a good hour with them and we would show them superhuman and uh, we would go through their existing workflows and we migrate them over and we kind of sh- kind of slap them on the wrist when they have like certain bad habits while we're watching them. And then we would get them set up for success. And we, we analyzed that cohort versus the, the previous one that was on a self-serve basis. And the latter retention rate skyrocketed, churn plummeted, NPS doubled. And so that's where we were like, okay, there's additionally, there's some magic here. You know, I, I'm a big believer that a startup at the end of the day is a series of experiments to unlock user psychology. And we did that in the form of this first time user experience. And so it was very contrarian to what you would expect with a piece of consumer or SaaS software. Our investors were like, what are you doing? This doesn't scale. You need to scale this up. And we were like, we know what we're doing here. We have such conviction down this path. And so we made that our go-to-market strategy. This was the first time user experience. You cannot use superhuman until you're onboarded by someone on the team. And so our head of growth, Gaurav, took over. He did like 400 onboardings. And then we brought in, um, we basically built out a growth uh, onboarding team. And to this day, we have onboarding specialists who are onboarding about five, 600 customers a week. Um, and it's growing. And so as we continue to scale the team. So because of that, there's been a wait list. And so that wait list has ballooned and it was 100,000, 200,000. Now there's 400,000 people on the wait list. It's because we just don't have enough people on the team to onboard these 400,000 people. Also, we keep people on the wait list if we think they are not product market fit with a product. So there are folks who have an Android app. We don't have an, an uh, they have an Android. We don't have an Android app yet. Um, they're likely gonna churn if they use Superhuman on desktop and Gmail on Android, right? Um, or there are folks who are, who are on Outlook um, and not on Gmail and G Suite. Um, they won't be able to use the product. And so we're, we've got this down to a science where based on these users filling out a pre-onboarding survey, we know with a high degree of accuracy, this person is going to be successful on Superhuman and this person's not. And this person who's not, we got to get the product a bit further along for them before we can actually enable it for them. And so... Um, so that's the approach that we've taken with with our, I guess, with our launch. Interesting. And, and do you think you will have an Android uh, launch? Oh, yeah. I we're we're prioritizing the experience right now. Um, we might have a alpha later this year in Q4, but I would expect uh, a customer facing version sometime early next year. Correct. I think I think put Clubhouse and Superhuman should be on Android because <laughs> I think you can cater to this, this sort of what audiences will. And uh, you know, uh, very interesting. You pointed out that you you made up the initial f- uh, first 40, 50 uh, people who could come come on board. But who does the audience actually cater to? Is it is it a B two B product for uh, for corporates? And who's who's the ideal customer? Yeah, the ideal customer uh, are professionals who spend hours a day in their inbox. And so we identified um, right before we started the company that there are about a billion professionals globally. And it's not just folks in tech, it's teachers, it's doctors, it's architects. Um, There are about a billion professionals globally that spend at least three or four hours a day in their inbox. And so Superhuman's mission and value prop is rooted in speed. Um, We save on average 
We save folks on average an hour a day using superhuman versus what they were using before. And in many cases, these users, these individuals are hitting inbox zero for the first time in their lives. Um, so that's that's the primary primary set of users and customers that we're going after. Um, when we first started the company, we went after, we laser focused on the power user um, archetype. And that included founders, CEOs, investors, executives, people who are doing a lot of email, whose needs are not currently being met in the market. Salespeople, recruiters, marketers, they have a lot of sales, recruiting, marketing, enablement, email tools. Um, those exist in the marketplace. And so we we went after that that previous um, archetype, that previous persona first. And then uh, as we've built the business and as we started to scale, we're expanding into other types of personas, other types of users and customers. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. A lot of founders, when they when they launch uh, one product, they're also looking to launch uh, you know other other second uh, second product or more number of products. What what is your uh, you know thesis behind how how should they approach about launching the next uh, a, se a second or third product? Yeah, we're we're smack dab in the middle of that right now. Um, we are in the process of working on Superhumans Act Two. Um, I, I can't go into too much detail there, um, but. Uh, I will say that whatever metrics that you're tracking that gives you an indication of the performance and success of the business, that cannot slip. If that slips for the first product, for the core business, it's time to hit the pause button on what you're working on um, with the next thing. Um, and so for us, for example, we not only track NPS, we not only track um, uh, usage and superhuman, um, the way that that's manifested is we, we have this metric internally called delightedness which person's delighted if they send 90% or more emails through superhuman versus using another mail client like Gmail or, or anything else in the market. And so we track that we track the very disappointed metric as well. So we can take, we still track our product market fit metric to this day, um, on a weekly basis. And so once those were operating at levels that we were comfortable with, that we were happy with, then um, we felt we had the resources and bandwidth to go ahead and start to take on a second product. If those were not performing at the levels that we were comfortable with, that we were happy with, then we would not have focused on a second product because for, for us and really for any founder or any, any company, they really should focus on, um, making the product experience delightful versus letting one kind of become mediocre and then start to work on a second one. Uh, it's, I think it's better business to make sure the, the first and core product is, is operating at levels that you're happy with. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, Superhuman is, is, is one of the most interesting, uh, companies, but, uh, what, what should founders do to make their, you know, teams bold, uh, and ambitious when it comes to you know product teams or even uh, for even for 
for marketing teams. Uh, what advice would you give to founders uh, who are looking to uh, build some great teams? Yeah, so <clears throat> pre-product market fit, there's a lot of control exerted, uh, especially amongst the, the founders, the founding team, and, and anyone at the leadership level. Is all that matters is to get to product market fit. Once you start to hit that inflection point, then you go from exerting control and being reactive to letting go of control and start to become more proactive beyond just product. And so for us, that's been a journey around um, that's been a journey around empowering uh, our team and really just setting a north star of here is where we want to get to. Um, we we trust given the caliber of folks that we've hired and the values alignment as we're we're very particular about bringing up people on the team who align with our three core values we trust that they will figure out how to get to that north star and just empower them and support them and make sure that they have the resources and that we as leaders are investing in their growth in order to help propel the company. And so it's been, it's been amazing to see that in the company from, you know, our, our lead iOS engineer, Amuye, she, um, she came on as, as the first mobile engineer on the team and she's ascended into head of engineering at superhuman. Um, our first growth generalist before we really realized that we were going to do onboardings um, as our core strategy uh, Laurel, she ascended into becoming a onboarding specialist, a senior onboarding specialist. Now, uh, she she's now our first uh, onboarding manager, right? And so, really empowering folks to to grow and give them the tools to help us as a company get from point A to that north star. Right. And uh, what 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 is some of your biggest lessons when it comes to acquiring and retaining talent? Uh, you've been part of. Uh, like I'm superhuman and ASEED. Uh, what do you what do you think uh, is the biggest challenge, and what what has been your lesson in retaining talent? Yeah, in terms of acquiring talent uh, and retaining talent, I would say the biggest lesson is really around you as a as a business, as a company, as a leadership team, as founders. First, identify where your core values are. Um, for us as a company. When we started uh, Superhuman back in May of 2015, we came up with these six values. Uh, it was be brilliant, be swift, do good, create delight, and uh, be resourceful. And I think there's one or two more. And a few years in, we had this self-reflection where we're like, you know what? Some of those values don't really, they're not really indicative of who we are. So like, break the rules was one of our values. And I think we took that because of Facebook's, you know, move fast and break things. And we're like, that's not indicative of who we are. We're not a type of company who just breaks the rules. Um, we're very intentional about what we do. And so we, we read this book called the advantage by Robert Lencioni. And there was a chapter specifically on core values. And as a leadership group, we spent every Thursday morning from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at a cafe in San Francisco. And for about three months, um, we talked about what are our values. And we casted a pretty wide net and we took a very iterative approach. 
And then we started to identify what our core values are and then started wordsmithing it. And those three, those three core values are create delight, um, do things of remarkable quality and be intentional. And so that permeates in, in, into all aspects of the organization from how we treat each other, how we treat customers, and especially how we acquire and retain talent. And so I think this is something that I wish we had done much earlier, like when we started the company, right? Um, I think that would have helped prevent against mishires that we made. We made a couple mishires in our first year um, that would have helped prevent against that. And that would have gave, given us the laser focus to identify here are the people in the market who not only pass our technical bar, um, our interview bar, but also adhere to these values as well. Because that's that's a, a very important thing as a company scales is to not lose their culture. Culture is a shared way of doing something with passion. I, I steal that from Brian Chesky from Airbnb. And we look at the, the values, the core values as the boundary conditions of the culture. And so it's it's important to continue to bring on talent that align with these core values that you've set out. Got it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think aligning values uh, to employees is very important and given the culture uh, of the company is important. And uh, Vivek, I want to talk about what's, what's, your, what's your thesis behind uh, seed investing and are you stage and sector and geography agnostic, especially when it comes to uh, now into, into uh, you know, working remotely? Excuse me. Yeah, so I've been fortunate enough last year to um, spend more time usually late nights, a uh, few hours a week, and mostly on the weekends uh, on angel investing. And so I started out making a handful of personal investments. Um, I've since um, have put together a small fund. Uh, so I'm a, a fund manager in that sense. And so making about 15, 20 investments uh, over the course of this year, it's about a, a million dollar fund. And I, my thesis, I first start with the market that the company is, um, that the startup is uh, looking to attack and it needs to be binarily big uh, and it needs to be growing. So that's, that needs to be a check. And then I look at the, the founders. Are the founders very opinionated about product? That's super important to me. Um, does the founder CEO have a technical background? As someone who is a founder CEO who didn't have a technical background, I realized my limitations, especially with product, especially with hiring engineers. Um, and so if the company is building a software tech company, to me, it's important that the founder CEO also has a tech background. And so Rahul, for example, Superhuman was uh, a PhD in computer science before he dropped out um, of, uh, of University of Cambridge. And so, um, so the team itself should also have some founder market fit um, and they should have some unique insight in the world that other people don't know. And that's usually a function of being in that particular space um, prior to starting the company and identifying pain points or problems in the market that may not be obvious to other people. And then from a stage standpoint, I look at everything from idea stage all the way to series A. And I love getting in as early as possible. So my sweet spot is around pre-seed and seed. And then from a focus standpoint, 
I primarily focus on B2B SaaS. Um, I look at productivity, messaging, collaboration. Um, and I do also invest in B2C. Um, B2C, mostly consumer, mostly mobile, um, and, and some social as well. Got it. Interesting. And uh, I quickly want to do that top three. Uh, what's your favorite business book? So I mentioned The Advantage by Robert Lencioni. That's one that I've shared the most uh, to other founders. The one that's, that's had probably the most impact on my life was The 48 Laws of Power. Um, that one, I wish I'd read much earlier in my life. It has given me a sense of how other people operate and uh, kind of fine-tuned against that. Um, so yeah, so those are, those are probably the ones that, that definitely come to mind. We'll put that in the, in the show notes. Uh, you know, if you can go back in time when you when you started working uh, uh, in, in startups, uh, be it uh, LIVAM or Superhuman, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, so I would have definitely have spent time investing in uh, learning software engineering and just, you know, if I was in college and even pre-college, I would have taken computer science classes and spent time on that. Um, I think with that set of skills, uh, one can become a force multiplier and be able to, to hack and build on their own. And that's, that is unfortunately a limitation I have. It's not to say I can't do it today. I, I definitely, when I started Airseed, I spent a couple of weeks immersing myself in Ruby on Rails and I taught myself, you know, enough to build a, a crawler to crawl data from LinkedIn and, you know, kind of do some really fun stuff there. Um, but that's something I, I definitely would have done differently. And then from an investing standpoint, I wish I had invested much earlier in my career. And uh, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom, Zoom? Um, not a fan of Slack. Um, I very much detest Slack. Uh, I mean, obviously, Superhuman um, for email. Outside of email, I would say from a data management standpoint, I use Airtable a lot. I also like Zapier. Zapier is really cool, too. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Vivek, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about you? Yeah, so I can be reached over email, Vivek at superhuman.com. I'm also on Twitter at vsidera. So feel free to either email or DM me. Right, we'll put that in the show notes. Vivek, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Yeah, thanks, Rohit. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.